You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 3. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one and turn to page uh, 822 and follow along with us uh, in one of those black hardcover Bibles in the pews in front of you. Uh, We're going to be starting uh, a new series this Christmas season, which we have uh, titled A Story for the Nations. And uh, we normally walk through books of the Bible uh, together, but because we are uh, coming to the Christmas season, we want to focus here on uh, the story uh, that this Christmas, what, the reason why we gather in uh, the first place. But any passage that we come to, we submit our lives to it, and we uh, learn from it, and we grow from it. And so we are excited to start here uh, in, uh, during this Christmas season in Jonah chapter 3. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that you see that this is a safe place for you uh, to hear God's Word, to hear about uh, Christianity, and to respond to it, and to see how great and loving and just our God is, and what He's done in our lives. And so I pray that you are able to see that uh, this morning. And as we start, I want you to think about what is your favorite thing about Christmas? What is your favorite thing about Christmas? It, it could be the, uh, the, the smells of Christmas. It could be the, the family coming over for Christmas for maybe a short period of time, or it could be for a long period of time. I'm not sure how you feel about that. Uh, or it could be the food that you uh, get to eat during Christmas. Uh, maybe it's the presents. I think for probably most of the kids in the room, it's the presents. Hey, what can I receive this Christmas year, and I'm going to be able to open up all of these gifts. There's lots of things to be uh, thankful for, to to look forward to when it comes to the Christmas season. But one thing I think we often forget, and I think is one of the most wonderful things about Christmas, is the actual story of Christmas. The reason why we actually celebrate, the reason we actually gather together as families and as a church and as we uh, give gifts to one another. Why, why do we actually do that? It's because there is a story about a God who gave his only son for us. And that God came in the flesh for us. And not only that story, but then how our stories, because all of us, every single one of you walked into this room today, you have a story. And you have a story that intersects with the story of Jesus. And the beautiful work of our God is how he actually weaves our story if we allow him into his story. So, this Christmas season, we're going to focus on the story of Christmas, but specifically thinking about the nations, because unless... Uh, any of you are Jewish and don't know, all of us would be considered the nations, especially here in John chapter 3. And so we come to this thinking about the nations. The Christmas story is primarily a story about a sending God and about a sending of His Son from the comfort of heaven to the brokenness of our world. Why does God do this? 
Why would God send His only Son into the world? Because He knows it's the only way. And John 3.16 tells us that God loves the world so much that He did send His only Son. But there are questions like, what is God's relationship with the nations? What is the role of God's people among the nations? What is Jesus' relationship with the nations? And on Christmas, what I hope that we will see is we will see men from the nations worshiping Jesus. We have the story of Christmas because we have a sending God. And Christmas was not the first time that we see God send people somewhere. Which is why we're here in Jonah chapter 3. And so this week, as we start in Jonah, next week, Pastor Ryan will preach in Isaiah 49. And then we're going to jump into Matthew's gospel account. And so I hope what this does, it provides a space for us to think about this story is not just our story. It's the story of the world and what God is doing in the world through you. And how do we now take that story to people who've never heard it? So when we look here in John chapter 3, here's what we see. God sends his bitter prophet to confront Nineveh as a gracious act of his character. And we'll get into uh, the, the scene and the background of why I call Jonah bitter. But for you this morning, as we, as we start this series, I want you to know that the biblical story is about a gracious God who sends his gospel message to, to the lost nations. The Bible is a story about a gracious God who sends His message to the nations. And therefore, the Christmas story is the culmination of that sending story. And Jonah helps us think about this. You may would say, what's the gospel according to the book of Jonah? Now, most of you, if you grew up in the Christian home, are probably aware of the story of Jonah. You probably know that he was swallowed by a great fish. But we're not going to focus on uh, that this morning. You probably know things about Jonah, that he went to Nineveh and that God's word came to him. There are things that we know, but this story is jam-packed with insights and implications for us today, some 2,000, almost 3,000 years later. Now, Jonah is a prophet. Prophets receive the word of God and they tell others about what God has said. They tell others what God has said. And the books of the prophets are generally the words of the prophets, right? So when we look here in the Old Testament, if you flip through some of the prophets, you're going to see that this is the word of the Lord, and then the prophet speaks the word of the Lord, and that's what the book is. But Jonah's different. Jonah's the prophet that the story is about him. Right? This, this story, this narrative, this book is about Jonah. And there's a particular reason that the book, the story, is about Jonah. You see, the story is... Almost like satire. Meaning that the characters act and live and do things ironically and respond differently than you would think they should. And so it helps us when we look at the story to know that this is written for us to think, why did they do that? They responded that way? Jonah did what? That's the way that we should be reading the story. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through this beautiful story. And I, I want to uh, provide some comments. I want to explain some things, apply God's word to our lives, and then give three insights 
after we walk through the passage. And I, I did struggle. I thought about what do I put up on the screen during this time? What I want you to do is I want you to, to look in your Bible as we walk through this together. Look at your Bible and follow along with me. So let's start there in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time? What does that mean? Well, you see, Jonah is the prophet who rebelled against God. He, he rebelled against his commands. Right, so let's look back to chapter 1. Now, this will help us understand the book as a whole, and it will help us understand this particular chapter uh, specifically. So look back at chapter 1, verse 1. It sounds a little familiar. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. But it says some uh, of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. And let me tell you about their evil. Nineveh, that is Assyria, was a great enemy of Israel. They had fought and fought and fought Israel. Nineveh was the capital city who, who represents the whole nation. And they were the strongest national force on the planet at this time. And to show off their might, they would skin people alive and hang their bones at their gates. They wanted you to know we are the biggest and the baddest and you don't want to mess with us. It was not a pleasant encounter to meet Nineveh. This was not the kind of people that you wanted to be around. It wasn't pleasant. You might be saying, no wonder Jonah didn't want to go. Was he afraid? Did he not like them? So Jonah runs. We know the story. Jonah runs. And the text uses this phrase that he went down. He went down. He went down. Which is often described as uh, this phrase uses to run towards death. And although geographically he's going west. So Nineveh was east of him. He's going west. So the author doesn't say he's going west. He says, no, he's going down. Why? Well, it says he went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. Jonah is trying to run from God, but he can't. So God hurls a storm at Jonah on the boat with these pagan sailors. And Jonah's asleep. And oddly enough, it's the pagan sailors who realize this isn't just a storm. This is God. Or this has to be a divine intervention. And there's a theme throughout the book that we're clearly going to see in chapter 3 that people respond the opposite way than what you would think. So these pagan sailors say, God is doing something, what should we do? So they wake up Jonah, they roll some dice and figure out, it's your fault. So just like anybody who would be in a situation that's not your fault, you would say, what did you do? They, they ask Jonah, what did you do? And look down at verse 9 of chapter 1. Look at what, how he answers. He answered them, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. What an awesome statement. And ironic from Jonah. Does Jonah even realize what he just said? I worship God, the God of the land and God of the sea, but I'm trying to run from that God. I'm trying to get away from Him. Doesn't make much sense, does it? But is that not what we do when we sin? That we say, I worship God. Sovereign over all things. Holds all things together. Sees every part of who I am and every part of my life. But I can hide in whatever place that I think I am. And away from people and away from others. And I, 
God doesn't know what I'm doing. Is that not the same thing that we do? When we choose to sin and choose to disobey God, to believe that God doesn't see us or that He can't do anything about it, that's the lie of our sin, to believe that God doesn't see and God may not care. Jonah says, I worship this God who is over the land and the sea. And there was nowhere I could go. But he misses it. Right? But in an ironic turn of events, it isn't the prophet who repents. Right? You may, you may have thought Jonah, he speaks this and realizes, oh, I'm convicted. No, Jonah doesn't repent. It's the immoral pagan sailors who repent. Right? The text says, they were seized with a great fear. And this word for fear is often used for worship. But Jonah? No. Throw me overboard. Seems like a humble move, right? You're kind of like, well, he's trying to save them, right? But I'm not quite sure. It may be his most selfish move yet that Jonah does this. What a better way not to have to go to Nineveh than to die in the ocean, right? If they kill me here, I don't have to go to Nineveh. I'm just saying, I'm not sure Jonah actually wanted to live. But God doesn't let this happen, does He? And here's the part we all know. Jonah gets thrown into the sea. He's swallowed by a great fish. And God lets him stew for a couple days. Right? He, he's mad. And then we get, we get a whole chapter about who God is and what Jonah's going to do. But what we never see Jonah do is actually say he's sorry. What we do see Jonah say is that he will obey. And so, this is where we pick up in chapter 3. Right? Jonah's vomited out on dry land he probably looks a little weird because all the stomach acid i mean i'm sure he's not the greatest looking guy in the world at this point and so he he gets back to the city and god says get up and go to the great city of nineveh now we're back in chapter three and preach the message that i tell you notice that this message is from god this isn't jonah's words this is god god is clearly speaking should let us know that we don't speak our own messages, but we speak the words of God. Verse 3, Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Alright, so this is different this time. Jonah doesn't run, he goes to Nineveh. Right, even a renegade, bitter prophet cannot stop God from sending his message to the nations. God was not going to let that happen. And so our God is so gracious to send his message to the lost world that he will send Jonah... People like Jonah, like me and you, to tell of God's grace. Let me tell you about the second chance I got to tell you about what God's going to do. Is this maybe not the story of the world? That God's word came to Adam and Eve. They heard it, they received it, but they said, no, I want to do something else. But then God could have ended it right there. But God doesn't. And a second word comes to Adam and Eve. So now we live in that world. This is the second time that God's word has come to us. Now we live out of that. We get to tell people of God's grace and his mercy and his kindness. Now look how the story describes Nineveh. It says, now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. It's both great in size, but it's also both great in the sense that God cares deeply about these people. It's greatly important to God. Verse 4, Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed. So notice that Jonah barely gets into the city 
he starts preaching God's message, and you can imagine, repent, God's going to destroy you. I mean, you, you can imagine him being very like energetic about this. I, I'm not sure he would have been uh, the Billy Graham of his day. I think he probably would have been very quiet and say, God's going to destroy you. I, I, that's kind of how I imagine Jonah in this moment. But notice his message. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, in the original Hebrew Bible, this is only five words. Maybe some of you like five-word sermons. I'm not sure. Five words, though. Five words. That's all he preached. It's almost like he wants to ensure their destruction. Right? God, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be demolished. There seems to be no effort on Jonah's part at all. There's no mention of Nineveh's sin. Right? How do they know that they've sinned? Why, why would they be in trouble in the first place? They don't know. They're a pagan nation who does not have God's word or his law. So where is Nineveh's sin at? What have they done against God? How do they actually respond to this message? Right? Remember, they lived in a pagan culture, in a pagan city. What are they going to do? How do they know what to do? Jonah doesn't tell them anything. And finally... Jonah doesn't mention God. He mentions nothing about God. They are lost. They're separated from God. What, why would they believe that it is God who's, who's actually going to do this? Jonah's kind of left the bar pretty low here. Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. What? The Ninevites? Those people believed God? Now, let me be very clear. Their believing is just not some knowledge. It's not, it's not just, hey, I, I believe in God. No, no, it was more than that. This is a relational, trusting knowledge. Even with Jonah's poor sermon, we believe in Yahweh, and we believe Him, and now we're going to respond to Him in a relationship. So much so that, look, they proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Jonah didn't even preach into the, in, in the entire city, potentially. He gets in one day, starts preaching. It doesn't take very long. Boom. These people now hear this message and they respond. Why? Because God, God didn't need Jonah to just do everything right. God sent Jonah to speak the message. And then God was going to do the work. Right? God was working. God saves him anyways. God doesn't need Jonah but he uses Jonah anyways. So church, let me be very clear. God doesn't need us, but our God is working all around us. Think of the relationships that you have with people who don't know Jesus. God's working in their lives through you or, and in other ways that you don't even get to see. So it's not just about us doing the right things, saying the right things, knowing the right things, being ready to answer all their objections. And instead it's, Finding where God is working already. May we pray, God, show me where you are working so that I may love on this couple or this person at work or these people at school. Show me where you are working and then just step right up to the plate. Because God, like in Nineveh, God is just, he's just tossing the softball up and all we have to do is swing. We make it really hard though, don't we? 
which, which overthink it, we analyze, we have the conversation, we, we think about the evangelism conversation we're going to have, and we, maybe you, you, you think about it about ten times, and then you rehearse what you're going to say, <clears throat> and what they're going to say, and then, some, and then it doesn't go anything like that, right? God is already working. We just have to find where he's working. But there's also immediate action here in Nineveh, right? Dressing in sackcloth is a physical act of humility, and fasting was and is a physical act of repentance. Right? These pagan people heard God's message and they responded. And I want you to see in this book that the pagans teach us more about true worship than God's own prophet. And notice that this conviction of theirs, we must respond, humility and repentance, must lead to action. Their hearts are pricked, and so now they respond. We are to repent, right? They confess, right? This is this humility. They confess to God and to others. And just as a sidebar, if, if you are fighting sin today, praise God for that. Maybe you're struggling with, with that sin that you've struggled with for a long time. What I've noticed is that the people who are winning against sin is the people who confess their sin. As, John, as uh, James tells us, right, you, we are healed when we confess our sins to one another. I think that's what's happening. When people are winning against their sin, it's because they are telling others, please help me fight this. They also were to seek forgiveness. Right, we're to ask God to forgive us. We're to change our ways so that we ensure obedience. It isn't like, yeah, God, thanks for showing me that, and then I move on. No, it's something that we actively pursue. How do we continually obey God? How do we, in essence, dress in sackcloth and fast? What are the ways that we can do that now? How do we humble ourselves, and how do we repent? Now, I want you to continue, and I want you to see who gets wind of God's message. Look at verse 6. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So truly, from the lowest people in Nineveh to the greatest, and the king, the king of the most murderous nation in the world at this point, he responds? Look what he says. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles. This means you better listen and you better do it. No person or animal, I'm not sure what they did, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. There is no doubt that these people heard God's message and this was true repentance. Now, don't miss it. The pagan nation... Israel's greatest enemy with no access to the law, nothing, and a pretty sparse message. They were more responsive than God's own prophet. And by extension, the people who were reading this, which was Israel, God's own people. The king of this nation humbles himself. And repents. And then has his people follow him. That's all that God wanted from his kings. But none of them would have done that. 
And not one person, even the animals, reject God's message. God can save anybody. Do we believe that? God can save anyone. No one is too far gone. Do you actually believe this? Maybe, maybe it's you in the room. You're like, God can't save me. And let me just be very clear. You've done nothing. What you've done pales in comparison to what Nineveh has done. Do you believe that God can save the people that you don't like? People that think differently than you, do differently than you, live across the world differently than you do? Do we believe that God cares and God loves and that God will save anyone no matter what they've done? Because that's what Jonah teaches us here. Jonah doesn't want to go. In chapter 4, he basically tells God, I knew you would do this. I knew you would save them. Because Jonah did not want them to be saved. Do we believe that God can save anyone? Now continue in verse 9 and see the Ninevites' repentance. I want you to see this. The king says, who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. They repent anyways. They have been truly convicted of their sin. And now they respond in humble repentance. And notice, they repent even if God doesn't spare them. Is that not true repentance? Is that not what real worship looks like? God, do whatever you want to to me, but I repent, I confess, I believe in who you are. No matter what comes my way. Now let me be very clear. There's absolutely grace in the midst of our sin. But that doesn't mean that there are not consequences. And so this repentance here is even if God does not change those consequences. And sometimes God does and sometimes God doesn't. But now I want you to look back at verse 4. Look, look back up at verse 4 in Jonah's message. Look at that last word. The CSB and some of our English translations, they translate the word demolished. Right, the technical term is to, is to be overturned. Right, it means what it says. It means turned over. And of course, this can be a city that is turned over, that is destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. But that isn't the only way the word can be used or understood. The word can also be understood as transformed as changed into the opposite, to be turned into something new. So Nineveh was indeed overturned, but not in the way that Jonah may have wanted. Nineveh was transformed through their repentance and confession, and they find God's mercy and grace. This city is now different. Church, transformation demands repentance. We talk about making mature disciples, those who are being transformed into the image of Jesus, right? We talk about being transformed. That happens when we are repentant of our own sin. And look, church, the true story, the true and final transformation is not found in Jonah's message here. It's found in the message of Christmas. And we know that Nineveh doesn't stay repentant because we know that Nineveh is destroyed. 
And so true and final transformation comes from repentance in the gospel of Jesus, that He came in our place, that He lived a perfect life and took on the holy justice of God so that we, our slates, may be wiped clean. And not only that, but then we might be made righteous in Christ. That's the story of Christmas. Not just that Jesus came as a baby, but that He came to purchase, to give His own life for us in ways that we could never understand. Now look how God responds to these Ninevites. Verse 10, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster that He had threatened them with, and He did not do it. Now, you may be asking, does God change His mind? Does God change His mind here? Great question. No. He acted true to His character. He acted true to His character. He is both just and merciful. Often we can look at the world and be like, well, they got what they deserved. It's almost like we only see God in one lens. Like He's only a judge. And He absolutely is. But that's not all He is. You see, God is perfectly holy, but also perfectly loving. Right? He is perfect justice, but is also able to show perfect mercy. We cannot totally comprehend God's character, and it's easy to pick and choose the characteristics that we want when we want to. Right in in chapter 4, Jonah throws this back in God's face. Somehow this is an insult to God. He quotes Exodus 34, 6. Which says this, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion and sin. Jonah says, I knew you were that God. Thank you. Praise God that he is this way. But it doesn't end there. He continues in Exodus 34, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. So our God is absolutely compassionate towards sinners, but he's also a just God. And it is a beautiful picture of completion there. We don't don't have to worry about that. How does he do that? How can our God be so merciful and so just at the same time? How does that even make sense? I'm not sure if I was Jonah, it would have made sense to me either. But now that I live 2,000 years later, it makes perfect sense. Because when Jesus came, it showed God's love very clearly. And it showed God's justice when he would not spare his own son to save us. The cross is where God's mercy and justice embrace. And so, yes, Jonah may have thrown this up in God's face. But God says, no, this is who I am. I am a merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love kind of God. Even to the people around the world who we may think are pagans, who we may think don't deserve God, who people that we may think that they don't actually get a chance. And you might be asking, what does it have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. Because Jonah shows us a side of the gospel that we often don't think about. So I want to show you three quick insights from the gospel according to Jonah. 
Number one is our God is gracious. He wants to show grace. Christmas is the ultimate act of grace. That God would step into our world in the brokenness and take it all on for you and me. Paul says it in Philippians that that God put on flesh. And in some way, what he put on, it lowered him. He humbled himself for us. This was a gracious act. And remember Nineveh, who was, if you remember the kind of people they were, who their king was, this nation can be compared to one of the worst nations in history. Yet God shows them mercy and grace. Because this is who he is. It is God's mercy that we see his love and his holiness. I right, think of Jonah. God is too loving and too holy to destroy Jonah after he rebelled. Or leave Jonah the way he is. Right, God is also too loving and too holy to leave us how we are. He would have not left his people. He has not left you. He will make you, if you have placed your faith in Christ and repented of your sin, He will make you into the image of Jesus because He's too loving and He's too holy not to. How will you respond today? If you're not a believer today, God desires to show you grace and mercy and kindness. He desires to pour out His love on you today. He has shown you His great love through the gospel. Through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you are not a Christian today, God is offering you an opportunity in Christ to receive Him. In Christ to repent and believe. And to make your story have a purpose in the end. That's what God wants for you. What about those of us who have called on the name of Jesus? What about those of us who are Christians? Well, secondly, the gospel according to Jonah shows that our God loves the lost. Right, Romans 5.8 tells us, I, I quote it often, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God loves the lost. It's the reason why we have the Christmas story in the, to begin with. Because God cares about those who do not know Him, who do not have a relationship, and He wants to bring us into that relationship. That's the story of Christmas. Now, this book, Jonah, chapter 4, ends with no real conclusion. It would be great if it ended in chapter 3. Everybody's great, everybody repents, God doesn't destroy them. What a wonderful story. Hey, Jonah preached and it worked out. But we get chapter 4. What happens? Jonah goes outside the city and he waits. He starts, tap, he starts tapping his foot. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll turn back from what they've done. Maybe they will go back to their sin and maybe God will destroy them. So Jonah waits and he waits and they, don't, and they don't turn around and they don't go back to their sin and they keep repenting. And Jonah's like, and he just begins to stew even more. And he's mad and he's frustrated that God is a compassionate God. And God uses an analogy and shows him that if you care about the tree that you didn't plant, how much more should I care about the people of this world? God is patient with Jonah and shows him how much he cares for Nineveh. Yes, the pagan, idolatrous, murderous nation. 
Are you okay, Christian, that God loves his enemies? Christian, are you okay that God loves your enemies? Because he wants to show them grace and mercy and kindness. Let us not forget that before Jesus, we were all God's enemies. And it's easy as time goes on, as we live the Christian life, it's easy for us to forget that we were God's enemies, that we were separated from him. Do you have a heart for the lost even when it's frustrating and it's different and they do things that you just don't like? Do you have a heart for the lost? You see, this book is a mirror. It has no ending because it wants, it's asking you the question. Do you love the lost? Are you okay with God loving the lost? It's really easy for us to say, well, I'm not like Jonah. But are my actions actually like Jonah? Do we have a heart for the nations, for the lost, for those who don't know God? Are we broken for them? Do we orient our lives around the lost who don't know Jesus? Do we live life with them? Do we get close with them? When it's all messy and they're around our kids and they say things they shouldn't and it's all kinds of awkward, are we okay with that? Because proximity breeds empathy. When we're close with people, and have them in our homes, and we do things with them, and it begins to help us care for them. We actually get to see them as people that God cares about. In the same compassion that our God has, God begins to use it and work in us, and then begins to build a relationship so that we become so burdened that we can't go a day without praying for these people. Because God loves them, and we love them too. And this book is a mirror because... We have a better ending. When Jesus is raised from the grave, He tells us you're to go to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded. Right now, we're commanded to go, just like Jonah. But what good is that if we are like Jonah? And we don't have compassion and mercy and kindness towards them. Our God loves the lost. And may He break our hearts so that we love the lost too. But thirdly, and maybe one of the most beautiful things here in this gospel according to Jonah, is that Jesus is the better Jonah. Jesus is the better Jonah. Matthew 12, verses 39, Jesus compares Himself to Jonah. He says, I am like Jonah who went into the belly of the fish for three days. I will also... Jesus comparing Jonah's time in the belly of the fish to his time in the grave. And so this is very important. Jesus compares himself to Jonah. But in many ways, Jesus, he's not just comparing himself, he's contrasting himself. Right, they're very different in, very, in some very specific ways. Right, number one, God sent Jesus, yes. But he's the better prophet, the truer prophet. Why? Because Jesus is God's word in the flesh. Jonah gave a five-word sermon that wasn't helpful. Jesus is the very word of God and takes us now into the presence of our Father. Jesus is the better prophet. He is the better sent one. 
Jesus also is not like Jonah because when Jesus comes uh, before the triumphal in, in, uh, entry and he looks over at Jerusalem, what does he do? He weeps. He cries. He mourns the sin of the people. Jonah sits on a hill and, and gets more frustrated and more angry and more bitter. And Jesus, he weeps and he cries for the people of God who do not actually know him. Jesus is better than Jonah. But Jonah also went outside the city to get mad. Jesus also went outside the city. Jesus is the one who goes outside the city not to be mad or frustrated, but to give his own life on a cross for you and me. You see, Jonah was thrown overboard and was prepared to die, but he didn't. Why? Because his mission wasn't to die, it was to preach. But Jesus... He was sent to preach and die. Because Jesus did die, there's now a gospel to preach. And if Jesus doesn't die, there's no gospel to preach. There's no Christmas story. It doesn't matter. The Christmas story is so beautiful, but only because the God of the universe came as a baby to die the death that we deserved. So church, would we now knowing who our great God is, knowing what He's done, knowing what He's done in our lives and what He's doing in the nations, would we now respond to Him? Not like Jonah. And although many of us come to this, and maybe we are kind of like Jonah, but may God begin to chisel away at our hearts and our minds so that we may be burdened and loved and care for the lost and those around us. I don't have to give you the stats. You know it. They're, the nations are coming here. They're living among us. We don't have to go to Asia or Africa or anywhere else. They are here. It's easier to go, but it doesn't matter if our hearts haven't been changed for them. That's my prayer for us as a church today. Would God change our hearts towards the lost? And may we show them the great and mercy and grace of our God. Pray with me to that end. God, we ask you this morning, would you please give us a heart for the nations? Would you please help us love them? Would we see them as people? Would we see them as people that you love? Would we see them as people who are separated by their sin from you. God, would the story of Jonah help us realize that this story of Christmas is for everyone in all places at all times all over the world. So God, may you prick our hearts, maybe even crush our hearts that we may love the lost, and be burdened for them, to pray for them, that we would actually organize the things that we do around reaching them. God, would you maybe raise up people just like Jonah that you would send all across the world here from our church family? Would you raise up people now to use their resources and their homes and their jobs and things that they do to reach the nations here that live among us? Would we as a church be a church that is reaching the nations because we have been burdened 
for them so that we care about the people you care about. This is our prayer this morning, God, and you must help us. You must help us do this. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen.